1 Peter 1, verses 13 through 16. Therefore, gird your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. There's probably been more of a few times in your life, just like there have been more than a few times in my life, where I have wondered how it is possible that I can respond rightly, faithfully, obediently to this nearly inexplicable command to be holy as God is holy. Let me suggest that one thing that is necessary to pave the way, one thing that must be knocked out of the way in order to think rightly with regard to how to respond to this command, is to recognize initially, first and foremost, that we are born into a state of unholiness. And much like the Jews for whom Paul prays and expresses his great love and desire for their salvation in Romans 9, the beginning of Romans 9, and then again in the beginning of Romans 10, Paul says there that they forsake the righteousness of God, having established their own. And so in their minds, they have no need for this command. They have no need for the righteousness of God. They have somehow cultivated in their minds the idea that they are righteous enough, that their level of holiness is enough. And you know this about the Pharisees, that they received their reward because they convinced people that that was true about them. Jesus' indictment on them, that they've received their reward in full by praying aloud in public, convincing people that they're religiously elite They're better spiritually than others because of how they present themselves, what they wear, and how they carry themselves, and what they say. And so that hypocrisy leads to Jesus making that declaration that they've received their reward in full. In other words, they will go to hell. They're condemned to an eternity of torment, although they have the appearance of godliness. So in order for you and I to respond rightly to this command to be holy, even as God is holy, we must first recognize that we fall utterly and completely short. Not a little bit short. Not 10% short. Not we're you know, doing pretty well one day and the next day not so well. We fall completely short. And for the person without Christ, this is an impossible task to get one's mind around. It's impossible. And therefore, it is a miracle when it actually happens. When, when a person becomes a Christian, what has happened is he's been regenerate, been made regenerate. He's been regenerated. He's been made alive. He was dead, and now he is alive. He was given ears to hear and eyes to see. And so when they see this command, this was true for you, it was true for me. When we read this command, be holy even as God is holy, we say, yeah, what's that all about? God must not be very holy if I can achieve that. And by the way, I think I've achieved enough. It's kind of the mindset with which you and I would have and likely did approach this idea. The contrast then that is embodied in this command between the character of God and the character of man must be addressed. 
it can't be escaped. We can't ignore the reality that you and I live on a daily basis, engaging in, at the very least, dipping our toe in and sometimes jumping in full speed ahead with a, a nosedive into some measure of unholiness. We have to ask the question, how then can God be pleased with us? How can God accept us? How can God embrace us if He is utterly and perfectly holy? And by the way, in Habakkuk 1.13, we're told that God cannot look upon unholiness. So then there must be a solution. There has to be a solution. God wouldn't give us this command only to frustrate us and Himself. He's given us this command for very explicit and God-honoring reasons. A quick review of last week when we were in verse 13. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Gird up the loins of your mind. We talked about that double metaphor, which doesn't make much sense to us in our modern vernacular, but for the old English speaker, it wouldn't have been all that unusual. But the truth is, that's what it says in the Greek. And your English translation probably doesn't even have that word loins in it unless you've got the King James. But the idea is that you are engaging in an action in such a way that it parallels a physical action. Something that would require the work of your body, although this isn't what that is. It's a parallel to what he's talking about. You understand the idea of girding up your loins for action. That simply means you're, you're gearing up for it physically. You're readying yourself for some kind of physical action. But Peter here is calling us to a mental action, if you will. He's calling us to engage the mind. The Gospel never bypassed the mind of any believer, ever. You must understand the Gospel. It's not unusual when asking someone, what is the Gospel? You get these words, well, it's the good news. Well, that's not untrue, but it's very generic. It's a simple, secular, literal, accurate, generic definition of the word Gospel. It's not wrong, it's just not real helpful. We must understand what the Bible defines the Gospel as. The Bible clearly defines the Gospel as the reality that God is holy, and in His holiness, He has called man to be equally holy, and man can't do that. And in a man-centered, man-made theology, what is required of mankind is something that he can achieve. Often referred to as Arminianism. In a biblical perspective on what God requires of mankind, it is clear that man cannot achieve it. Therefore, the God-man who fully obeyed his Father with a sinless life gave his life, giving a substitutionary atoning death for all those who would trust in him fully and his resurrection, which then, by the way, conquered that death and the sin that led to it. That's the Gospel. The fully obedient life of Jesus Christ, His substitutionary atoning death, and His new life-giving, death-destroying resurrection. That's the Gospel. As clearly as I know how to say it. That's how Paul defines it in 1 Corinthians 15. But many times when you ask a person, what is the gospel? You know, are you a Christian? Well, sure I am. What is the gospel? Well, you know, that's the word of God. The gospel, that's the word of God. No, it's not. That's actually a wrong answer. The gospel is not the word of God. 
The Word of God contains the Gospel, and the Gospel is the central focus of the Word of God. But to say the Gospel is the Word of God is highly inaccurate. It's very confusing. You can't get your mental arms completely around the whole Bible in your lifetime. You can get a good perspective on the flow of the Bible, and you should be working toward that, as am I. But you can get a good, solid, working knowledge of what the Gospel is to have the ability to articulate it to others so that you would share the joy of knowing Christ with them, that they too would have that joy. That's evangelism. And you and I are compelled to do that because of the grace that Christ has extended to us. His compassion for us leads to a willingness to have compassion on others. But without a mental awareness and ability to articulate what the gospel is, you are evangelistically impotent. You are unable to share the gospel if you don't know the gospel. So here, where Peter calls the reader to prepare your minds for action, this is completely rooted in what I just explained in verses 1-12. through It is the hope of the resurrection for all those who are obedient to Jesus Christ. And that certain hope will result in a love for holiness. It's an inextricable relationship. If you're a Christian, you'll love holiness and you hate your unholiness, although you will deal with it the rest of your earthly life. As you know, Peter goes on here to say, keep sober in spirit. And you see the clear and obvious earthly parallel. The person who subjects himself to things that keep him from being sober on a physiological level has no capacity for thinking rightly. You get that. You see someone who's drunk, you say, okay, he's not thinking straight. That truth, that axiomatic reality in the physiological realm illustrates for us this reality in the spiritual realm. We must also be sober-minded, sober of spirit, spiritually. We must be ready for mental action. We must be thinking with a seriousness, a sobriety, in a self-controlled manner about what God has said and what He therefore requires of me and has enabled me to do. That is what it is to be of sober spirit. Really, it means to be self-controlled. And then the command. Those are all participles leading up. Those modify the command. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's point number one from last week. Diligently hope in God's grace. The English translation says fix your hope. In the Greek, it's really one word, and the word is hope. But it means the same thing. But it's an intentional, strategic, deliberate effort to set your thinking upon the grace of God. To think about God's grace. What is God's grace? Learn to define God's grace. I think a good working definition that I know you've heard before is unmerited favor. God's unmerited favor in biblical perspective. Fixing your hope, setting your mind upon the grace that ultimately will be brought to you at the return of Jesus Christ when He takes you home with Him. That's the fullness of grace as far as how it will affect you. Ultimately, when all time has come to a stop and eternity moves forward forever and ever and ever, there will be a greater dispensation of grace. There will be no pain, no tears, no suffering ever. But you and I step into that reality in most senses when Christ comes to take us to be with Him 
And we no longer experience the trials of this life, which, as you know, is the vehicle of grace in the book of 1 Peter. Those trials that are of a momentary light affliction, according to Paul in 2 Corinthians, that do not compare to the eternal weight of glory. The grace and fullness poured out on us forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. That momentary light affliction that you're experiencing right now, though it seems more than momentary and more than light, pales in comparison to that eternal weight of glory. And we mentioned in Revelation 22, verse 20, the end of the Bible, the final statement, He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming quickly. I read an article, or at least part of an article, just this last week, mocking this statement, saying, well, how long ago did he say this? I'm coming quickly. I mentioned this to a dear friend, and he said, and as for God, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as a day. So the sad reality is that very, very often today, there will be those who will superimpose their limited thinking upon the Scripture and look at it and say, well, that's a foolish statement, when actually the inverse is true. You and I, in our inability to understand certain things in the Scripture, must recognize that the Bible is not foolish. We are. And as Hebrews chapter 4 has called us, we are to sit under the judgment and the scrutiny of the Word of God as it rightly judges our heart attitudes and informs us of God's character, which is other than our character, as we will see today. That passage in Revelation 22 goes on to say, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Paul's regular statement. Grace to you. Grace and peace to you in some cases. And so this is John's prayer as he has heard and written down Jesus' words who has said, I'm coming quickly. And so... His response to that is, Amen, come quickly. That's what I long for. And this really is what Peter is referring to. At the revelation of Jesus Christ, that fullness of grace will be tremendous. And that's what we need to be thinking about. And so I challenge you and myself this morning, how often do you think about that? Is that the focal point of your daily meditation, the return of Jesus Christ? Are you thinking about you know, whether or not you're going to get your next raise more often than that? You know, fill in that blank with all kinds of things. You've got certain things that you desire, and it's not wrong to desire those things. But when those things supersede the joy that you expect to experience in the full return of Jesus Christ, the full revelation of Jesus Christ, and that's idolatry. You don't want to experience that. You don't want to engage in that. You want to long for the grace of God. Diligently hope in God's grace. Point number two. Point number two. Diligently imitate God's holiness. Diligently imitate God's holiness. This, of course, requires some measure of understanding of God's holiness. And I confess to you that this is a daunting task. This truly causes me to tremble. I take um, somewhat of a bittersweet joy in approaching the Word of God before you this morning to make some feeble effort or some 
genuine effort to give a feeble presentation of the reality of God's holiness is something for which I'm not adequate. I don't apologize for what I'm going to tell you. It's all true. I just assure you that it will fall far short of what you need to understand regarding this all-important reality of God's character. Let me read the text to you again, starting with verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Here, Peter points to the miraculous change that has taken place in the nature and character of those who have been regenerated by the hand of God, adopted into His family. Verse 14, as you know, begins with this phrase, as obedient children. This is literally, in the Greek, as children of obedience. It carries different weight when you say it that way. And that is really the, uh, the literal flow. Children of obedience. As children of obedience, you obey the one who is your father because you love him. And as you love him because he first loved you, you show that love, recognizing the fact that he has adopted you into that love. You bear his name, and so you want to bear it well by obeying his every command. This is the certain reality of the Christian regenerate state. I did not say that this is not from time to time polluted and obscured by a desire for things sinful. But the ultimate disposition of the believer is to please and obey his Father. Now that alone separates the crowd. And I don't necessarily just mean this crowd. I mean the crowd that calls itself Christians. Today, it is not unusual for a person to say something like, yes, I'm a Christian, but I'm not really into that lordship thing. I don't find myself desiring to obey the Lord, but I certainly am glad He saved me. Those are mutually exclusive comments. And so when you and I talk about things like this and think about things like this and pray about things like this, there should be passion in our hearts for the desperate disposition of those who have been deceived by false teachers. So if it sounds on occasion when we discuss these things, when I discuss these things, like I'm a little bit angry, I probably am. I probably am. I'm probably disgusted with those who have a phenomenal opportunity with hundreds and in some cases even thousands of people who are unbelievably unclear about this basic Christian reality. And it shows a lack of love for those whom they teach and influence. And so because of my love for God and my love for you, you must understand that calling yourself a Christian does not make you one. Asking Jesus into your heart has nothing to do with anything biblical. Calling upon Him to be your Lord and Savior, just that statement in and of itself has no power. Uttering the five-letter word, J-E-S-U-S, -S, does nothing for you. But what Peter has called us to here is that which, when obeyed, results in this label, children of obedience, that is expressed in one's life. There is a pattern of obedience because there is a desire for obedience. 
That desire for obedience results in obedience. If there is a disinterest in obeying the Lord, particularly at the point where obedience becomes difficult, that is crystal clear, proof positive that that person is not a child of obedience. There's a lot of fuzzy teaching on this. I hope I'm clearing it up for you. And I hope you will take this and clear it up for others. The idea of an easy believism is not found in the Bible. An easy believism that leads to a sinful life, and yet some declaration that, well, yes, of course I'm a Christian. This stands in stark contrast to the phrase given to these people in their past. And the phrase is, children of wrath. Now children of obedience, once children of wrath, you're either one or the other. Ephesians 2 verse 3 says, Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. The unbeliever doesn't want to have anything to do with the reality that this was their natural born condition. No, you don't know me. No, you don't know my upbringing. My parents were wonderful. They raised me to be a wonderful, responsible person. You're a child of wrath. I had a guy tell me one time, you know, you just need to get to know me better. And I said, you know what, I, I know you really, really well because I know everything the Bible says about you and I trust what God says. I'd love to get to know you better. But you're rejecting what I'm telling you is true about you based on what the Scripture says. We've got no starting place. At the point where you will humble yourself before what the Bible says and agree that this must be true, then we can talk. But the person who comes to the Scripture saying, you know, I've heard you quote all those passages about total depravity, but you don't know me, is a person who has considered himself to be the standard of truth rather than God and His Word. And so, you've got a lot of people who consider themselves to be the standard of truth. And they disagree on most everything, and therefore, they ought to have enough sense to realize that all but at least one of them are wrong. And the reality is, all are wrong except God. In 1 John 3, verse 10, by this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Another use of the word children. The children of God, the children of the devil. It's obvious. Oh, no, no, no. You can't know whether or not somebody's a Christian. Only God knows that. John says, it's obvious. You going to believe the buzz terminology of the, the pseudo-Christian church today that says only God knows, or are you going to believe what John the Apostle says? He says it's obvious. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. Well, my good deeds outweigh my bad. That won't cut it. In Isaiah 57, verse 3, But come here, you sons of a sorceress, offspring of an adulterer and a prostitute, against whom do you jest? Against whom do you open wide your mouth and stick out your tongue? Are you not children of rebellion? Offspring of deceit? Again, children of something other than obedience. Children of wrath. Children of rebellion. Offspring of deceit. This is the condition of the unbeliever. And he absolutely will not acknowledge this in that condition. Why? Because that is his nature. 
is a nature of disobedience, a nature of rebellion, a nature of deceit. So all he knows to do is cover his sin and pretend that it doesn't exist and hope that people believe it. Jesus, to the scribes and Pharisees in John 8, verse 43, said, Why do you not understand what I'm saying? You ever feel like saying that, somebody? Jesus did too. Why do you not understand what I am saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. The nature of the unbeliever, the natural born state into which you and I were born is a state of deception. It is a dishonest condition. And again, the argument against that is, you don't know me. And that's a faulty argument. The Bible says this is true about everyone. Romans 6, verse 16, regarding this idea of being children of obedience. Paul says here, Do you not know that when you present yourself to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. Again, a chasm between those who are committed to righteousness and those who aren't. Slavery to righteousness as opposed to slavery to unrighteousness. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. This is your new nature as a believer. You are a slave to righteousness. It's a metaphor. It's not a burdensome slavery. It's a slavery unto the freedom of living a righteous life. It's a slavery unto that which is good. You love that which is right and pure and pleasing to Christ. This is your new nature. It is the character of your adopted father and is necessarily reflected in you. It can't be taken away. It can't be destroyed. And it's always there, even though it can be and will be obscured. And so, you want to be conformed to His image, not conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. This is what Peter goes on to say here. Do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours. It's a term of possession. Your former lusts were not simply things you did. They were things over which you had ownership. You were entangled in them. They were your character. It's not a matter of making bad choices. It's a matter of having corrupt character. A cancerous spiritual state. So in Romans 12, verse 2, Paul says, And do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And so Paul commands this willingness, even as Peter does, to abandon the conformation 
to the former lusts which used to be yours in your ignorance. In Acts 3, verse 17, And now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance. He's talking to Christians. You formerly, in your unbelieving state, acted in ignorance, just as your rulers did also. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. So the prophets had announced this, Isaiah uh, chapter 53 in particular, announcing the suffering of Jesus Christ. And you were ignorant of that. But now in your believing state, you're no longer ignorant. Acts 17, I'm sorry, uh, yeah, Acts 17, 23. What you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. This is Paul at the Oropagus on Mars Hill proclaiming the gospel before those who would listen because that's what they gathered for. They gathered to listen to the intellectual speech of the day. You know, whoever came in with the most eloquent words was the one who kind of won the day. And so Paul came in and said, I see that you have all of these statues, these monuments to the unknown God, to many gods and to the unknown God. I'm here to proclaim to you who this unknown God is. See, this wasn't just true of unbelieving Hellenistic Greeks. This is true of every unbeliever who has ever lived. They are aware of this unknown God. Why do you think Hinduism has so many? It's safe. Surely we'll eventually, you know, creating so many, get to the right one so he will be appeased and will not mash us. It's true in the heart of the unbeliever. It's the natural born desire of the unbeliever to eventually appease that unknown God. I don't know who he is or what he does or what he requires, but I know he exists. And God says that to be true, that he has written his existence on the heart of man. Romans 1 tells us that. He's written his existence in creation and on the heart of man. There is no such thing as an atheist. Psalm 14.1 tells us that the fool says in his heart that there is no God, but it is absolutely impossible for him to erase that reality which God has burned into him in his physical conception. Acts 17, verse 30, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. All people everywhere should repent. In Ephesians 4.17, So this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in their futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they have, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you have heard Him and have been taught in Him, just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in the righteousness and holiness of the truth. You're no longer, if you're in Christ, ignorant of these truths. You long for these truths. And so the needed, repeated command for you and for me is to live like it. On the other hand, the person who has no interest in this holiness but wants to be seen as being holy, his problem is that he is in the dark. He has become callous. He has given himself over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. 
Colossians 3, verse, verses 5 through 10 speak of this chasm as well, this contrast. Therefore, consider the members, he's speaking to Christians, consider the members of your earthly body, that's your flesh, that's your unredeemed earthly state, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. There is the exact opposite phrase of what those who are in Christ are called. Either children of obedience or sons of disobedience. Paul's declaration here is that the wrath of God is reserved for those who live in that disobedience. And then he says this again to the believer, and in them you also, now listen carefully, in them you also once walked, means you did them, but there's more to it than that. In them you once walked when you were living in them. That speaks of character. It's not only what you did, but it's what you lived. It was the condition of your life, and you might look at this list and say, well, there are like three things on here that I never ever did, but they were your character. Two things were going on. One, God in His kindness restrained you from those things. And two, you were scared to do them for some secular external reason. But your heart was for them. Your heart was for them. But Paul says this is the former condition. In them you also once walked when you were living in them, but now you also put them all aside. Don't subject yourself to them. Stay away from the temptations to do these things. What are they? Anger? Wrath? Malice? It's unkind thinking toward others that results in action against them, either words or deeds. Slander? Abusive speech from your mouth? Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. Again, Peter refers to these as the former lusts that were yours. You once had ownership of these lusts. You no longer do if you are in him But it's not enough for the child of God to simply abstain from things that misrepresent Him. It's not enough to simply abstain from the former lusts that were yours. You must become like Him. This is the positive command. The negative command is to do away with, to stay away from, to not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. And then the positive command, be holy. In verse 15, Peter says, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. To simply stop doing wrong things would make a man nothing more than a legalist. It would make him hopeless in his works. Deceived, a false sense of security. His activity is seen as righteousness. It's seen as faithfulness. 
And yet, he wallows in his unholiness, doing a tremendous job of convincing others that it's not true about him. It is not enough to simply be a good works salvation participant. You must be like God. What does that mean? What then is the Holy One like? The point is that He is holy. As I said, what does that mean? A.W. Tozer in The Attributes of God says, They say when Leonardo da Vinci painted his famous Last Supper, he had little difficulty with any of it except the faces. Then he painted the faces in without too much trouble except one. He did not feel himself worthy to paint the face of Jesus. He held off and kept holding off, unwilling to approach it but knowing he must. Then in the impulsive carelessness of despair, he just painted it quickly and let it go. There is no use, he said, I cannot paint him. Tozer goes on to say, I feel very much the same way about explaining the holiness of God. I think that same sense of despair is on my heart, he says. There isn't any use for anybody to try to explain holiness. The greatest speakers on this subject can play their oratorical harps, but it sounds tinny and unreal, though you have listened to music, but you haven't seen God. He goes on to say, I suppose the hardest thing about God to comprehend intellectually is His infinitude. But you can talk about the infinitude of God and not feel yourself a worm. But when you talk about the holiness of God, you have not only the problem of an intellectual grasp, but also a sense of personal vileness, which is almost too much to bear. God's holiness is His utter flawlessness. He is pure without impurity, perfect without imperfection. He is righteous without unrighteousness. But this is not the primary meaning of the word holy. The primary meaning has to do with His being set apart, His otherness. Again from A.W. Tozer, in The Godhood of God, he says, the only true God is He who hates sin with a perfect abhorrence and whose nature eternally burns against it. He is the one who beheld the wickedness of the Antiluvians and who opened the windows of heaven and poured down the flood of His righteous indignation. He is the one who rained fire and brimstone upon Sodom and Gomorrah and utterly destroyed these cities of the plain. He is the one who sent the plagues upon Egypt and destroyed her haughty monarch together his host at the Red Sea. He is the one who caused the earth to open its mouth and swallow alive Korah and his rebellious company. He is the one who spared not his own son when he was made sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So holy is God and such is the antagonism of his nature against evil that for one sin he banished our first parents from Eden. For one sin he cursed the posterity of Ham. For one sin he turned Lot's wife into a pillar of salt. For one sin he sent out fire and devoured the sons of Aaron. For one sin Moses died in the wilderness. For one sin Achan and his family were all stoned to death. For one sin the servant of Elisha was smitten with leprosy. Behold, therefore, not only the goodness, but also the severity of God. 
And this is the God that every Christ-rejecter has yet to meet in judgment. The holiness of God is not simply that He is pure and righteous and perfect. It is that He eternally disallows any measure of unholiness. It will all be destroyed. And all those who die in their unholiness will experience that destruction for eternity. Peter goes on with this phrase, He who called you. The One who called you. In Ephesians 4, verse 1, Paul says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. The person who is called to believe in the Gospel. The person who is called to embrace Jesus Christ. To love Jesus Christ. To worship Jesus Christ. To be obedient to Jesus Christ. Must walk a life that's worthy of that calling. His life must reflect that. He cannot simply walk around and say, yeah, I'm a Christian. Yeah, I I accepted Jesus. When his life doesn't reflect the call. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 7, Paul says, For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. This is where he has just explained the need for all believers to maintain sexual purity and makes it clear that God's vengeance is poured out upon the one who engages a believer in sexual impurity. And so again, For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity. It's a real, clear, black and white reality. But for what? Sanctification. So he who rejects this is not rejecting man. See that? The person who rejects this idea of being sanctified because God is holy, he's not rejecting man, but the God who gives His Holy Spirit to you. And he could easily be talking here about the Holy Spirit's impact and effect upon the unbeliever. John 14 tells us that he comes to convict over sin and righteousness and judgment. The unbeliever experiences the work of the Holy Spirit with regard to conviction. And so Paul says here that God has given His Holy Spirit to you for the unbeliever, the giving of the Holy Spirit to him is simply the conviction that he brings for his willingness to continue in his disobedience, particularly for those who claim to know Christ. In Romans 8, 28, Paul says, all things work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. One of the things to which the believer is called is a life of obedience. Continuing in verse 15, Peter goes on to say, be holy yourselves also. Be holy yourselves. To whatever degree, the Lord in His kindness and grace and empathy for you, that you have a richer, deeper, more accurate, more impactful understanding of the holiness of God through my feeble efforts, recognize you are called to the same exact level of holiness. That is a monstrous responsibility. And you can't achieve it. But you must try. 
You must respond to the reality that He has in fact set you apart for holiness. In Revelation chapter 15, verse 4, John says, Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify Your name? For You alone are holy. This is true. There is no one who is holy as God is holy. This command for us is clear though. He who has called us to this holiness has called us ourselves to be holy. To be holy as the one who has called us is holy. Be here is from the Greek term ginomai. It is an aorist tense imperative mood verb. Now let me explain to you what that means. It's very important. In the aorist tense Verbs are given in a snapshot form unrelated to time. So the idea is that it happens. The issue is not when it happens. The issue is that it certainly happens. So therefore, for the believer, it has certainly happened. It is a call upon his life at some point, certainly immediately in his life, that he be holy, that he respond to this command. That aorist tense means that it certainly takes place. Time is not... The issue, the issue is that it is a reality. The imperative mood is the idea that normally expresses a command. It's an intention. It's an exhortation, a request in some cases, but certainly in this case, a clear command. Therefore, the imperative mood is not an expression of reality, but possibility and volition. And so this is how Peter is addressing this at this point. He's not dealing at this point with the reality of the changed nature. He's dealing with the fact that you must engage. He's calling you to be involved in the practice of a personal sanctification, a devotion to being increasingly holy. It is the same word used in John chapter 3, verse 3, where Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom. Now, I'm not dealing with the theology there of that phrase so much as I am dealing with the verb be. The idea is that it is happening for the first time. You're choosing to be holy. It's an initial process. The word genomai is from the same root word from which we get the word genesis. It is the beginning. It is a new effort. But it is an engaged effort. You are involved. Peter goes on to say then, in all your behavior. And if you've been in sound biblical teaching environments for any appreciable period of time, you say, well, now wait a minute. We're not into behavior modification. We're into soul transformation that leads to the change of behavior. Peter here is dealing with, as you know, the reality that the condition has changed. You're a new creature now. You are, in fact, granted holiness, but you are called to engage in holiness. In what? In all your behavior. You get no hall passes on this. There is not one moment in time at which you can say something like, I'm sorry for how I acted. That wasn't me. And as Paul Tripp has said, well, it sure looked like you. You get no ability or opportunity to justify any action ever that is not holy. Ever. Ever. 
Why behavior? Why does Peter use the word behavior? Because behavior means one's way of life. It's how he lives. It's his lifestyle. His behavior or conduct reflects who he is. Out of the mouth speaks the heart. What you do, what you say, where you go, how you respond, what you look at. Those are all expressions of who you are. It is through obedient behavior that spiritual growth takes place. This is how sanctification works. It's the nuts and bolts of it. You've got to engage. You've got to be involved. To be holy is to be willing to subject yourself to the commands of Scripture. The let go, let God mentality is a lie. I understand when someone says let go, let God, and they're just trying to get somebody to relax. Just trust the Lord. But the fundamental teaching behind that theology is the idea that you do nothing. And there is no more dangerous statement to the Christian than to tell him to do nothing. Proverbs 9, verse 10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. You need knowledge of the Holy One. You need to understand Him. You need to know Him. You need to know that if He requires you to be holy as He is holy, what it means that He is holy. You need to understand His character that your character would yield to His. Clement said, Seeing then that we are the portion of one who is holy, let us do all the deeds of sanctification. If we are a portion of Him, if we are a reflection of Him, then let us engage in everything that the Scripture calls us to related to sanctification. To put off sin and to put on Christ. Charles Spurgeon said, The child of God works not for life, but from life. He does not work to be saved, but works because he is saved. And he works primarily at his sanctification. Stephen Charnock said, This is the prime way of honoring God. We do not so glorify God by elevated admirations or eloquent expressions or pompous services of Him as when we aspire to a conversing with Him with unstained spirits and live to Him in living like Him. Verse 16 of our text this morning, it is then written, because it is written. Because it is written. Because the Bible says. You know the song, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. That is rich theology. That's how you know Jesus loves you because the Bible says so. Not because you feel it, but because truth tells you that. And here, when we rest in the truth of what the Scripture has said, obeying the command of Peter, it's not by mistake, it's no mystery, it's not mystical, it's no secret, Peter says here, because it is written. Your love, let me tell you this, your love for God, your love for Christ, is rooted in your love for the Word. Your expression of your love for God, your faithfulness to Him, your faithfulness to the church, is monitored by how much effort you place in understanding God's Word and applying it in your life. That is the proof of your election. R.C. Sproul says the first and primary meaning of the term holy refers to God's transcendent majesty, His otherness, the sense in which God is different from anything in the created order. 
The term holy in the Old Testament was used when God consecrated a people or a place or a time and set it apart because it was different. The idea here in Peter's epistle is that the basis for the call to nonconformity is that we are to be imitators of God in His difference. Just as God is different from the world, so are we as His children and heirs of the inheritance set before us in heaven to be different from the world. We are to be different. Back to the Old Testament in Leviticus chapter 11, verse 44, we read similar terminology. For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves therefore and be holy, for I am holy. We believe that Peter gets this statement as a direct quote from Leviticus 19, verse 2. In Leviticus 19, verse 1, we read, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, and then verse 2, Speak to all the congregation of the sons of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for the Lord your God is holy. For I, the Lord your God, am holy. Chapter 20 of Leviticus, verse 7, You shall consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy. For I am the Lord your God. You shall keep my statutes and practice them. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. K.H. Jobes says Leviticus prescribes the customs and rituals that priests of God's covenant will perform, which will set the worship of Yahweh apart from the pagan worship of other nations. In chapters 11 through 20, it has included the regulations concerning clean and unclean food, purification after childbirth, regulations about infectious skin diseases and mildew, bodily discharges, unlawful sexual relationships, and various other laws. Interestingly, Peter does not mandate that his first century readers in Greco-Roman Asia Minor follow the particular instructions of the Holiness Code. His application of the Old Testament law is direct but differentiated. He quotes Leviticus 19 verse 2 to establish the principle that as Christians, his readers must be set apart from their surrounding culture in a way that is consistent with God as revealed in Jesus Christ, end quote. So what we see here is a call to moral purity. There are elements of the Levitical code that have nothing to do with moral purity. They were simply measures by which God commanded Israel to obey Him so that there would be a test as to whether or not they would do it. The moral code, in its essence, is that for which we are still held responsible. And the moral code essentially is boiled down to this one issue, and that is be holy, as God is holy. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him, because we will see Him just as He is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies himself just as He is pure. Who's the standard for your purity? It's Christ, whose purity is without impurity. It is perfect, spotless, flawless purity. And you and I are to be pure as He is pure. Ephesians 5 verse 1 says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children in that God has adopted you as His child, as His children, and lavished His love upon you, imitate Him. That's the proper response. In Matthew 5, verse 48, Jesus says, Therefore, you are to be perfect, teleos, 
without imperfection, complete, finished, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This command, be holy, is not simply in the imperative mood. This is a tad bit of a conundrum for the Greek scholar. It is not only in the imperative mood, it is also in the indicative mood. What does that mean? When you have an indicative statement, it is simply a declaration. It is a statement of reality. This is how it is. When you have an imperative, you have a command. And so both apply to this command here. Both apply to the statement in verse 16. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. In other words, you will be and you must be. In other words, it is inevitable that you will be. That's why it's translated as shall rather than must. You shall be holy. That is the indicative reality. It is a concrete black and white statement. This is the truth. If you are one who has received the mercy of God and He has caused you to be born again, you will be holy. But in the same breath, Peter is commanding you and I with an imperative to be holy. You're commanded to be holy and it is stated that we will be holy. In this verse, again back to Matthew 5, verse 48, what's the context? Well, let's back up to verse 43, or verse 38, actually. Matthew 5, 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you, and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? And it is at this point that Jesus then says, Be perfect even as your heavenly Father is perfect. Perfect in what? Perfect in conduct. Perfect in your behavior. He's just laid the context dealing with the need to deal with people with proper God-honoring, holy conduct. And so he calls the believer back to that. To be like your father. So, how do I do this? How can I be holy? Even as God is holy, how do I obey this command? It's important to remember here, Matthew 5.48, this is what's called a filial verb. The, the idea that or a filial command, the idea that it's given to sons and daughters. It's much like the word familial. It's given to children. Those who have been blessed by their parents, in particular in this case, their father. Sons or daughters. Remember 1 Peter 3, verse 5, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who by His mercy has caused you to be born Again, don't you want to honor your Father who by His grace 
and not by your merit, has caused you to be born again. I'll just take you back to our two main points. Number one, diligently hope in God's grace. That's how. That's how. Diligently hope. Set your focus on God's grace. Be a person who rests and wallows in God's grace. Be a person who extends God's grace. Point number two, diligently pursue God's holiness. How do you do that? You've got to understand His holiness. You have to read the right books. You've got to subject yourself to the right teaching. You have to surround yourself with the right people. You've got to separate yourself from the wrong people. Don't be conformed to your former lusts. You remember in verse 13, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely upon the grace of God. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 21 helps. But examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me say it this way. You must see Him. And I think you understand that I don't mean that you would actually see Him visibly, but you must experience Him. How do you do that? It is not fundamentally an emotional matter. It is fundamentally a mental matter. It is a matter of understanding who He has declared Himself to be. Look at the response of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6, starting with verse 3. Speaking of the seraphim who worshiped the Lord. One called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of Him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me. Woe is me. Woe is me. For I am undone. Because I understand in greater measure the great chasm. Isaiah was a believer. Right? He's not an unbeliever saying, Wow! My life has been a mess. He's a believer. He's a righteous man. And he recognizes that he and all of Israel are a people of unclean lips. There is residual unholiness. Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. You struggle with sanctification. You struggle with besetting sins. You're not experiencing victory. You wonder why you're frustrated. You're still gossiping. You're still angry with someone. You can't extend grace. It's because you're not subjecting yourself to the character of God. Not really. Not really. Were you to do so, you would be undone. Job 42, verse 1. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things. This is after 41 chapters of misery. Even at the point in chapter 38 where Job seems to be coming around, God says, sit down and shut up. Job says, put my hand over my mouth. He's made headway with Job. I know you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. This is why I absolutely abhor Arminian theology. It's disgusting to imagine that somehow man participates with God in salvation and initiates the process. Job makes it clear, no purpose of yours can be thwarted. 
Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have declared that which I did not understand. See that? You see the, the reality to which Job has arrived? I declared that which I didn't understand. I was talking about things I didn't get, I didn't see, but I talked like I knew what I was talking about. You remember where Job declares he insists upon having a day in court with the Lord? Job goes on to say, Therefore I have declared that which I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear now, and I will speak. I will ask you, and you instruct me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore I retract, and I repent in dust and ashes. It's the biblical mandate to be holy that separates the regenerate from the unregenerate. It separates the believer from the false believer, the holy from the unholy. It is the command to be holy that forces the one who is not interested in holiness to reckon with the condition of his soul, to examine himself against this imperative. For him to be told to be holy is foreign, unreasonable, and even repulsive. He does not believe that holiness is necessary or even important because it is not in him to do so. So he must be told, he must be instructed, corrected, rebuked, even chastised. A.W. Pink in The Holiness of God says, The unregenerate do not really believe in the holiness of God. Their concept of His character is altogether one-sided. They fondly hope that His mercy will override everything else. Psalm 50 verse 21 says, You thought that I was just like you. Pink says this is God's charge against them. They think only of a God patterned after their own evil hearts, hence their continuance in a course of mad folly. Such is the holiness ascribed to the divine nature and character in Scripture that it clearly demonstrates their superhuman origin. Meaning that the Scriptures reveal a God who is unlike a God that man would create. Therefore, when man creates his own God, it's clearly in obvious contrast to the truth of who God really is. If, though, this man will examine the holy character of God, acknowledge that this is the disposition of the Christian while acknowledging that this is not his desire, he is at least aware that there is a problem. If he will then continue to examine God's holy character while recognizing that he is a God of grace who causes his children to be born again and will prepare his mind for action, keeping a sober spirit, fixing his hope on the grace that is to come to him at the revelation of Jesus Christ, holiness will be his and will be his passion. Back to 1 Peter 1 verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. John MacArthur has said, you can't face God and delight in Him when there's sin in your life. Whenever there's unconfessed sin, you'll have a difficult time praying. God doesn't want that to happen to you. He wants you to be holy even if He has to discipline you to bring that about. So there is the disposition of the unbeliever who is completely disinterested in holiness, but there is the sad and desperate condition of the believer who rejects the call to holiness upon his life, harboring unholiness, refusing to reject it, refusing to repent, refusing to confess, refusing to forsake it, and so he lives in misery. Stephen Charnock said, 
Not all the vials of judgment that have or shall be poured out upon the wicked world, nor the flaming furnace of a sinner's conscience, nor the irreversible sentence pronounced against the rebellious demons, nor the groans of the damned creatures give such a demonstration of God's hatred of sin as the wrath of God let loose upon His Son. Never did divine holiness appear more beautiful and lovely than at the time our Savior's countenance was most marred in the midst of His dying groans. This He Himself acknowledges in Psalm 22. When God had turned His smiling face from Him and thrust His sharp knife into His heart, which forced that terrible cry from Him, My God, my God, why have You forsaken Me? He adores this perfection. Thou art holy. Father, as we look to You now, we look to You through our Savior who has spared us from the certain result of our unholy state. He who is holy took on sin and therefore necessitated judgment and punishment. So we would ask, Lord, that we would think rightly about these things. That we would long to be pure even as He is pure. That we would have a deepening desire for being people of purity. Humans of holiness. Individuals whose righteousness is not our own, but that which we have been given by Christ and therefore long to engage in. We ask now as we go to the Lord's table that Your love for us would motivate us to be holy even as You are holy. Amen.